Welcome to Design Lessons, the podcast where we design our teaching days to be fulfilling for us and irresistible to our students. I'm Dr. Michelle Schmidt-Moore, and instructional design is my superpower. Each episode, we will take actionable steps to create great teaching days. We'll focus on mindset, real-world opportunities, and critical and creative thinking for us and our students. So, whether you're on your commute to school, walking your dog, or doing the dishes, let's start designing. Welcome, designers. Today, we are focusing on the mindset and relationships touchstone. Amy Chambers from Lighten Up Teaching is joining us, so get your notebooks ready because she shares some great strategies about mindfulness and behavior for you and your students. And as Amy says, you can't call into school grumpy. Before you get started with Amy, I need to ask you to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. This lets us reach more people, especially as a new podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So now... Let's welcome Amy. Hi, Michelle. I'm really excited to be here. So um, I was kind of curious. Um, you know, we've known each other for a little while, but I was really curious about how you really came to be sort of a mindset and sort of um, behavior expert. Okay. Well, I originally was going to be an art teacher when I um, started college, and then I started working with kids with special needs as like side jobs in college. And I really enjoyed that. And I thought that would be a good experience for being an art teacher. Um, and when I started getting out and looking for jobs, I ended up also taking coursework in special ed. And I just, every job I've taken, I'm drawn to the most challenging classrooms. I worked with children who were severely affected with autism in middle school and my first job. And then I moved into a center for adjudicated youth. So kids who had um, trouble with the law. So my first five years of teaching, I was really um, drawn to those most challenging classrooms. And then I started working in a school where I worked with an intensive needs special education classroom. So I did all that for about 10 years. And when I was pregnant, there were some changes at my school and they moved me into a resource special ed classroom. So I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I will have kids who know how to sit in a chair and, you know, they'll be able to learn a lot more easily and I'll be able to plan these educational lessons and it's just going to be so much easier. Um, and that was not the case at all. <laughs> and also, I mean, it was different, but it wasn't easier. I also was eight months pregnant when I started that job. So then I went wow. on maternity leave and came back with a newborn um, who didn't sleep. And I really struggled with that feeling of kind of failure that I thought I would be able, it would be so much easier to teach kids with more traditional behaviors than what I had been used to. And I really went on a mindset journey for myself Hmm. so that I could, you know, be more healthy dealing with, you know, toddler, newborn, all that. And every time I learned something, I thought my kids could really use this too. So I just really naturally started implementing mindset work into my classroom. And 
um, my son's almost nine. So this was about nine years ago and there wasn't very much out there in terms of social, emotional learning and mindfulness in the classroom. So it's really exciting to see that come up more, but I've really been studying this personally and then applying it in the classroom for about nine years. And in terms of behavior, I think because of the jobs I've always had, that's just always been an area that I needed to know a lot about. And I just find it really interesting and rewarding work. So that's kind of how. I love that. I mean, I, lo- I always love hearing everyone's journey. And I was, I was thinking about what you were saying about um, this journey for yourself. Like we start with our own mindfulness mm-hmm. um, and you've sort of seen the benefits of it working for you. And then you're able to kind of bring that to your classroom and bring that to your students. And it sounds like also, you know, you've kind of, you not used your son, but like, you know, your, your son is like kind of like your first person, your first child that you're able really to try your, your sort of your philosophy about mindset um, yes. with. For sure. Um, and he's obviously the hardest one. He listens to me the least. <laughs> <laughs> he does listen, but you know, yeah, everyone uh, is a teacher and a mom knows how that goes. And so why, why do you feel like this mindfulness is so important um, for you and then also for your students? Well, I have seen how much it can benefit them because one thing I learned really quickly when I made this job transition is that you know, you can do the very best teaching and the most, you could do your lessons with fidelity, but a kid is not going to be able to learn to read, for example, if they're not developmentally ready for that. Or Mm -hmm. if, you know, one of the things I remember a lot is the halt, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. So if Mm -hmm. you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, your brain really can't learn that prefrontal cortex isn't ready to take in information. And while our schools tend to be really focused on academics and growth in that way, you really have to set that bottom level of the hierarchy of needs that, you know, they have to eat Mm -hmm. and feel good and feel secure and have enough sleep. So I feel like mindfulness is One thing that I can teach the kids that no matter how hungry, angry, lonely, or tired they are when they come in the door, in our classroom, I can at least teach them a skill that can help them at least notice what's going on and have a little bit better reaction to what else is going on around them. Um, So I just feel like it's a really useful skill for everyone to kind of take what's happening in the moment and make the best of the situation, whatever that might look like on a different day. And really all mindfulness is, is paying attention. It's not necessarily yoga or breathing or talking about all of your feelings. It's just paying attention to what's going on with you. And as teachers, it's paying attention to what's going on with us and what's going on to all those students that have come into our classroom and are trusting us for the next eight hours or six hours or 45 minutes. Um, so I just mm-hmm. think it's very important for all of us to pay attention. And that's why I think mindfulness is so important. 
Well, and I think that you were just talking about um, HALT as an acronym to kind of help each of us sort of remember sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. Um, so I think I can now, you know, I think we all know in general what that is, but I think that HALT acronym is, is such an important like strategy to kind of help what's going on. I know for, you know, you can always, I think all of us can think of a time when we've been hungry or tired and as a result, you know, just irritable and not focused and, and sort of, and you can imagine what that might be like for our students who, you know, might not even, um, sort of have that, that mindfulness, paying attention to this idea that, oh, I'm hungry. That's why I'm feeling irritable or, you know, I'm tired. That's why this seems so difficult in this moment. Um, I know it's something I have to remind myself so I can imagine, um, you know, our younger selves and our kids that that would be even more important to kind of teach them. Absolutely. I have to remind myself all the time, even Mm -hmm. though this should be second nature for me at this point. It's still, so oh, yeah, I have to remind sure. myself constantly. Well, you know, and I know that in, you know, in teaching um, mindfulness, in teaching procedures, in in teaching um, students um, about sort of behavior, you know, how what should like teachers sort of expectations or what should their mindset be around behavior growth? Right. Well. What I have noticed is that with behavior and social emotional learning or anytime we implement a new behavior plan, for some reason, teachers really expect immediate growth. And I've noticed that for a lot of teachers, the expectation is, you know, this kid is never sitting in their seat and I want them to sit in their seat the whole time they're in my classroom. However, like if we're teaching a kid how to read or how to do algebra, we start in small chunks and we expect small incremental growth. And even sometimes we know that there'll be a little backslide and then more progress. So it really is the same with social emotional learning and behavior. And I think sometimes it's even, we should even have more of an expectation of that it's going to be an incremental Mm. growth because it involves so much more than just what's happening in our classrooms. So one, one kind of loose guideline is if you're trying a new strategy, it's going to be at least two weeks before you see, before you can tell if it's working or not. Now, if, if it is something that really doesn't align with you personally, or it's just like a really complicated plan that, you're just really not able to keep up with, then I would say, you know, you want it to work for you and your class or the particular student that you're working with. Mm-hmm. But if if it's something that you're able to do, you need to give it at least two weeks to see if it is actually working with the students before you scrap it. Um, and just think of it like whatever skill you're used to teaching. Think about how the way you view academic progress with kids and just remember that it's a process and growth mindset works for behavior as well as learning math or history or whatever subject you're working on. I imagine that can also sort of change your, um, as a teacher, change your 
outlook on your day, you know, in the sense that, um, you know, as you're designing kind of your perfect teaching day, you know, and nothing's ever perfect. But I think if your mindset is that, um, you know, this student isn't doing this yet, this student, however, was doing, you know, whatever the behavior mm-hmm. was, he was doing it 10 times last class period, but we, we've, you know, we've managed it down to five. Right. Um, you know, I know a, um, a co-teacher of mine um, that I worked with, she's on my team, she had um, used with the student kind of helping that student understand sort of what was going on and so that he could see his progress as well. Um, and she said that it was a, a strategy that really worked for him and for her in terms of sort of making him aware of mm-hmm. You know what he was, what the behavior was, and then you know, and obviously he had to you know want to to change the behavior as well. But right. I think it kind of helped him to visually see what was happening and also see his progress over time. Yes, it's very that reflection piece is very beneficial to everyone involved, um, and it can even sometimes it you're able to kind of get the whole class in on it. That's tricky and it depends on the situation, but you can't even kind of celebrate as a whole class. Like, look, we had to stop instruction three times to redirect yesterday and we only had to do it twice today or whatever. There are Mm -hmm. ways that you can even get the whole class on board and celebrating that success instead of celebrating or instead of paying attention to what went wrong because if you're paying attention to it, whether it's positive or negative attention, you're mm. growing that seed more than this well, that makes sense. lead instead of growing the seed, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. So celebrating sort of the wins that you are having so that it's, it kind of reinforces, you know, what the positive behavior was or the, mm-hmm. the growth. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that whole reflection process is being mindful it's paying attention to what's happening um, and that celebrating incremental success is really important. And the word yet is just a game changer in terms of how we speak and the words we use with ourselves and with our coworkers and with our students. Mm. So how, what are some of your sort of favorite sort of strategies or tools that you use um, with your students and in your classroom Well, one of the great things about my job as a resource teacher is I'm able to kind of try things out in my classroom and then share it with other teachers. And so a lot of my favorites are ones that I've also seen other teachers use in a bigger classroom that have worked well. Um, I think that having a class mission statement is a great strategy that works for on a lot of levels. Um, it kind of goes along with that, having learning targets on the board, we have a mission statement. So as a class, we come together and decide what we're here to do. So in my job as a resource teacher, um, I had different groups. So I might have a math group or a reading group or a social skills group. And so in this group, we're here to learn how to be better readers and writers And we also want to have fun and we also want to be kind to each other or whatever. And as a class, we would have a discussion about what we were here for. And we would say the mission statement every day before 
group started. So I would go pick up my kids and we kind of line up outside the door and stop and pay attention to what our goals were Mm -hmm. in our classroom. And that didn't ever change. That was, we're here to learn. We're here to be better readers and writers, whatever. We wrote it as a group. And I even would have the kids, like we would make a poster of it together. Um, And that was a great literacy um, task for us to do together. That was also fun because they could be creative. But what that does is it helps me because I am not always the most structured naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, The kids are like, oh, we need to say the mission statement. So it helped give a structure to the class, which is very important in trauma-informed practices. um, So Mm -hmm. the kids know what to expect. And then when a child is doing something that might not align with our mission, I can refer to the mission statement instead of calling the kid down or telling them they're doing something wrong. Like if they start telling me a story about, you know, what they did last weekend, which we do have time set aside for that type of connection in our classroom. But if we're in the middle of a reading lesson and we really need to be focusing on our mission of being better readers and writers, I can refer to the mission statement. And it's a very like gentle way of redirecting that doesn't make the kid wrong. It's just, this is what we're here to do right now. And it really teaches that focus and um, intention, which is a struggle for lots of students, um, especially when I'm working in a special education situation. So I love doing the class mission statement. And in different situations, we've also had the kids write personal mission statements, which can focus more on their personal goals or what their life goals are. Mm. can be really helpful as well, especially when you're having to do more targeted intervention with the kid. You can help them remember what they want to do. Um, which so that's an, an interesting way to do kind of goal setting as well. So this is my personal mission statement yeah. and then providing them time to reflect or reflect with them on what they said was important to them exactly. for that quarter exactly. or unit. Or, and mm-hmm. I think one of the things that... Okay, so if you go into education, there's a high likelihood that you had a pretty positive experience in school. And so you want to work in schools. I mean, I know there are some people that go in for the exact opposite reason because they want to make it better for other kids. But you probably value education as a really important thing. And I think we just kind of assume, well, the parents get up and send the kids to school. So obviously they think it's important. Well, it's also the law. So (laughs) I've noticed, because I have a lot of meetings with families as a special education teacher, I've noticed that that importance of education isn't necessarily inherent in the values of every family, which is fine. So I have to help the kids figure out why it is important for them to be there and not just because it's a law and they have to be there. So I'll spend time talking to my kids and helping them think about what they love doing, what they feel like they're really good at, because a lot of my students, the schoolwork we're doing is not necessarily the thing that they feel like they're good at. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for all classrooms, this is just a good connection activity anyway, but we'll spend time talking about what they love doing, what they're good at, what they think they might want to do when they're not in school anymore and they're professionals, professional adults. And 
that is great because I learn a lot about the kids, but also I've had them, depending on the age level, write about what they'd want to do or draw a picture of them as an adult doing this profession or skill. And then no matter what we're working on, I can connect that to the job that they feel like they want to do. And Mm -hmm. I pretty much, whatever it is they want to do, no one's ever said they wanted to do anything illegal or mean or hurtful. I would probably redirect that, but pretty much anything else. Okay. You want to be a professional basketball player. You have to learn how to follow your coach's directions. You know, you're not, and you have to go to college and play in a college to be a professional basketball player. As far as I know, that's pretty much at least you at least have to graduate from high school and, you know, you have to learn how to follow the rules. You have to be coachable. So Hmm. even if you don't want to do this reading right now, you know, it's part of the practice. It's part of the rules. So, or if they're practice the skill of being coachable. (laughs) Right. So, um, that's just been very helpful for them to have that vision in front of them. And it helps me connect what we're doing. It helps make it meaningful for them because like I tell my students all the time, reading and math were never hard for me, but PE was awful and I hated it and I felt really bad at it. And I practiced sometimes and didn't get that much better at it, but I only had to go to PE once a week, you know, I went to recess, which was fine because I could choose what I wanted to do. But if I had to run a mile a day, every day at school, that would have been really miserable for me. Um, but I did it and I still practice that to get better at it because it helps me grow. Mm. So and how does this I know in? that exercise makes me feel better and makes me healthier, but as a kid, I didn't necessarily get that. Make that connection. Yeah. So this is a really great way to help the kids have meaning for being there and yeah. feel good about it, even if they're not always achieving at high levels on the traditional ways that we value achievement at school. So it connects them to sort of where they want to go in the future. Um, And how does it sort of link to this idea of professionals and training? I know that was something that you use sometimes. Yeah, I had that written down to talk about. So um, Amy Dean is a great, A-M-I-E Dean. She is a great behavior specialist who... I did some training with her a few years back and she worked with a lot of middle and high school kids with significant behavior issues and challenges. And she said that she realized that using the word disrespectful or saying be respectful is really tricky because what respect looks like in your home might be different than what respect looks like in someone else's home. And so if a kid is acting in a way that is commonly seen in their household and then you call that disrespectful, you're not only saying you're not acting right, but maybe like those people that you care about more than anything in your home are not acting right either. And that's all, you know, value judgments and all that. So that's really tricky. So instead of trying to teach kids to behave under my values of what I think are respectful. If we're more focused on, you're going to be a professional at something when you're done with school. And so we need to learn professional behaviors so that you can have some success in life. And so that 
takes it out of like a value on who you are as a person and more, these are skills we're learning for the purpose of having a job. And yes, I have found that's really useful and it helps me feel like I'm valuing each kid's experience more fully and not being judgmental, but helping them learn a skill. You know, I think that sort of ties in the way you frame that really just makes me think of it's a, it's a mindset. Um, you know, often we think about, you know, be respectful. And just like you said, everyone has their own version of what, what is respect and what respectful looks like. Mm-hmm. So by reframing it for kids um, into the sort of neutral value um, framework, then that really does help everyone kind of meet on the same page of, okay, what does respectful look like? Right. Because if you think about one of the things, I think I read this in a book called For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood. But it's just really struck me and I think about it a lot. If you go to different churches or different culturally or different religions, the expected behavior within the church that is respectful is very different. Like the church I grew up in, the preacher said the prayer and everyone else quietly bowed their heads. I would go to church with my best friend that was more of an evangelical church and everyone prayed out loud at the same time mm-hmm. and even would get around and move during the prayer, which in my church you sat still stiff, you know, you didn't move. Yeah. And then other churches, like everyone, you know, talking back to the preacher is part of the positive of the and yeah. the message. So you know, each teacher comes into the classroom with their different idea of what is appropriate classroom behavior. And we do have to have some kind of container so that it can work. But at the same time, we shouldn't be telling someone that what they're doing is wrong or disrespectful, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That might not be wrong or disrespectful to them. Just like we learn about all the cultural differences with eye contact while you're speaking all that like there's so many people coming into our buildings with so many different experiences it's really easy for us to lose engagement and relationship with kids when we think all we're trying to do is make our classroom well managed and Mm. I really hard to not do that when possible it's very tricky but the professional behavior can really help What are some other strategies or tools that you use? So in our class, in our school, all the teachers have had, well, not all the teachers, but many of us have had compassionate schools training. And so Mm -hmm. each classroom has a calm spot, which with COVID, I don't think we'll be able to use the calm spot in the same way. But Mm -hmm. normally there's a calm spot where kids kind of know they can go there whenever they need a reset or they're feeling tired or stressed or they just can't sit still any longer. And there's like fidget toys or pillows. Every teacher has it set up differently. But there's a safe spot in the classroom where the kid can go and just kind of regroup, usually for one to three minutes. Mm -hmm. That has been really great, especially when I'm pulling kids from different classrooms to know that they also have a calm spot wherever they go. We have them in the cafeteria, the gym, special Mm. classrooms so that's you can and it's not like a punishment like you need to go to the calm spot it's do you think it would help you to go to the calm spot right now 
or they can just ask or some teachers just have an understanding if no one's in there, you can go. But having some sort of space. Um, my husband teaches middle school and in his classroom, they're seventh graders. They can kind of just like go sit out in the hall, you know, one at a time and mm-hmm. that's needed. Or he just kind of has a desk away from the other desk that can be a regrouping spot. I also have little um, trash cans. They're little like pencil cups that I got at the Dollar Tree, but they're mm-hmm. really cute. They're little trash cans. And I kind of teach kids about that's a good container. Like if they're really anxious about something, they can just like envision themselves like putting it in the trash can. It's like, we don't necessarily have to talk about it, but just know that it's safe in there and you can pick it back up when you leave the classroom. But while you're in here and we're trying to learn, that's a place to set your worries. And then you can think about them later. And that's really helpful for some kids. And I bought several of them. So for some students, I let them kind of have their own trash can in their classroom. And I usually set it up away from where they are so they can just look at it because otherwise they're, you know, noisy with it. And they're really mm. good people want to play with them. I also have apology slips in my classroom that are available for the kids. And we just talk about how, when you know, you kind of mess something up. <laughs> it's like yeah. a form that they can fill out that gives them some of the words with some blanks to fill in if they want to apologize to a teacher or to another student. And I model apologizing. I love that. I had one of my norms this year was um, basically to apologize. Uh, It was better worded than I'm about to say, but you know, the the one, and the kids came up with it, you know, it's just this idea of sort of own up when Mm -hmm. you know you've done something wrong and apologize. So I love this idea of having the apologize slips because like you said, that gives them the words to be able to do it. Yeah. And in our culture, I think that's one of the biggest things we're missing right now is, you know, this kind of call out culture where like you did this thing wrong and you're canceled it's really hard. Yeah. And I, I get that. And I think in some cases it is warranted. And I think it's, there's not a space for people to be able to say, I did something really wrong and maybe I knew better. Maybe I didn't, but these are all the things I've done to learn about what I did wrong and I'm listening and this is what I'm going to do to make it better. So yeah, hopeful that our kids are going to have more room for that in their lives And by modeling that, like, just like any other teacher, you know, our jobs are really over full and there's a lot going on. And some days, you know, you can't call in uh, grumpy to work. (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, you know, it would really be better if I wasn't around children today because I just don't have all my ducks in a row. But I'll usually tell the kids, you know, up front, like, hey, I didn't sleep very well last night and I'm not at my best. So, I'm hoping that I'm not going to lose my temper, but could you guys also help me out with that? What are some things we could do to help me out with that? And they're usually really sweet and they usually do. uh, They usually act in a way that helps me Mm -hmm. with that. And when I do lose my temper, I always apologize. And whether it's whole class or one-on-one, I really try to amend, make amends with the kid Mm -hmm. and let them know that, I don't like the way that I reacted to a situation. I find also that um, like doing that in the same way that the first thing happened. So for instance, um, 
if I were to inadvertently or, you know, not unthinkingly call out a kid, um, Mm -hmm. then I try to apologize also publicly as well. Right. So like, because if I, you know, inadvertently call out a kid and that kid feels embarrassed and then I go apologize quietly, I feel as though, unless that's that kid's preferred method, but I don't know. I just find like if, if I were to call someone out and we've all done it, you know, not, no, that's not never our intention. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like to apologize publicly, um, one, because I mean it. And two, because I think it also models the behavior for, for students. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that is one of the most valuable things we can do as educators. And I have noticed that it seems to be really difficult for most people to own up to things. And the more I do it, the easier it is. Like it's not even difficult for me to do it now. Yeah. Um, so you, t- um, you've also started a morning mindfulness club. Um, yes. what does that look like? How does it help your students? So I was on the PBIS committee at our school for years and a couple of other teachers actually had the idea and it made the most sense for the school counselor and I to do the club because we didn't have a homeroom class. So we had that space in the morning and teachers can nominate students who they feel like could use that extra check-in in the morning. And we just, the kids, instead of, you know, getting off the bus and going to sit in the cafeteria, that's loud and overwhelming to eat breakfast. They would pick up their breakfast and come to my classroom and we would play games, do social emotional skills, kind of more intensively work on some of the things that I weave into my regular teaching and just check in and have time. And we'd usually do like a short, quiet, what do we call it? Mindful moment. And before they left to go into class, but that was really helpful for a lot of those kids, especially the kids that really thrive on that quality time. And what it also allowed me to do was to notice if a kid really came in hot that day or really sad or really down. And what we could do is work through some things like, hey, what's going on? What's up? And they might say, you know, I didn't really sleep really well last night and I'm grumpy or I got in a fight with my mom before I got in the bus or whatever. And one of the things we would do is like write a letter together to the teacher to be like, hey, Miss Chambers and I noticed that I'm feeling kind of tired and grumpy this morning. I want to have a good day in class. What can you do to help me with that? Hmm. Because can you imagine the difference between a kid coming in and just like completely disrupting your space first thing in the morning versus them coming in to you and saying, Hey, look, I'm this is how I'm feeling today. Can you help me out with that? Just that amount of understanding and respect you would have for that kid for, letting you know that up front. Absolutely. And I think it takes the stress off the kid to know that the teacher's got their back, you know? Yeah. And they've already, you've kind of helped them to express it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what are some things that teachers can do, you know, in their classroom? So let's say they don't have a mindfulness club necessarily, or, or that sort of pre time in the morning, what are some um, things that they can do kind of, I don't know, maybe each day or, um, I know you talked a bit about temperature checks or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So temperature checks are a great 
tool to use. So I taught the kids and you can use whatever scale. I usually did one to 10. And you think about one's like the worst day of your life. Like your dog died or, you know, you're really, really sad or mad or upset. And a 10 is like, you found out you're going to Disney tomorrow, you know, whatever. Usually you're not going to be a one or a 10, but how are you feeling? And you can have kids just hold up. Like you can just teach them that and practice it and then just say temperature check and they can like hold up their fingers. And then you can notice anyone who's maybe a five or below or whatever your Mm -hmm. scale is. Oh, that's a kid I might need to check in with. And um, one classroom that I kind of team taught all year, a whole third grade classroom, we got in the habit of just letting the kids know that they could put a sticky note on their desk with their number. Mm. It felt like it was something we needed to know. So even if we hadn't done a temperature check, but a kid just put, you know, a little sticky note with like a two on their desk, then, you know, you might need to check in with that kid because you might not, you certainly probably don't have time to personally check in with each kid for more than a few seconds, Yeah, but you can manage that time. So that's really helpful. I have talked to some teachers who do a Google form. So like if you have one-on-one devices or kids have access to technology, they would have their students fill out a Google form each morning. And one teacher I talked to worked in a school with a lot of hunger issues. So she would ask the kids, have you had enough to eat today? Is there anything you need me to know? Like maybe what's your temperature? And she had the form set up so that it you know, she has maybe a hundred students because she's in middle school, but she had the form set up. So it would flag responses that were like below a certain number or yes, I'm really hungry. So she would know to check those first. Mm, So she needed to be, so I love that idea. I certainly did not come up with that, but I think it's great. I love it. Yeah. Um, And that's also, you know, that's a great way to teach kids to advocate for themselves and to let kids know that, you care about their experience, even if you can't have a conversation with every single one of them, especially when you're teaching mm-hmm. 80 to 100 kids a day. I think it's really important to always let them know how much they matter to us and that we care about their experiences. So that's one thing I highly recommend. I also think it's really important to think about what your personality type is as a teacher and match what you're doing to what's going to work for you and for your students. So I did one training that talked about different types, like an innovator. So I would say that's me. Like I love trying new things. So like Mm -hmm. that really excites me, but for some teachers, that's really hard. So you wouldn't want to set up the system that causes you to have to learn new Mm -hmm. things all the time. Yeah. Maybe you're like old school. So you really like, like the rules and the order and the structure. So you might create a system where you're just building into the structure, like a mission statement, a check-in, you know, a yeah. in the day where you're checking in with the kids that you need to, something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're yeah. kind of designing your day um, that matches what your kids need, but also fits in with what you are also comfortable with. Absolutely. Because like for me, you know, doing breath work and like a meditation in class is really comfortable, but that just doesn't work for maybe like an old school teacher who really wants it to look like a classroom where everyone's like sitting in their desk and like learning, reading the whole time they're in there, you know? And there's also comedian. 
a systems person, like a confident manager, like that really organized teacher who is Mm -hmm. really great with keeping up with behavior charts and sticker charts and all that kind of thing, you know? So think about who you are as a teacher and what's going to work for you and then kind of pick strategies or tailor strategies because the bottom line is, you know, our students are very important and we want to make it work for them. But if we're in charge of it and it's, we're not comfortable with the management of it, it's not going to work. If you try to do really like where it depends on taking lots of data points every day and keeping up with a spreadsheet, that is just not going to work for me. Mm-hmm. So but it might be someone else's like jam. Right. That might or be I can either thing. ask for someone else to help me with that part of it, or I can mm-hmm. pick something that's like a happy medium because I just know myself well enough to know that that is not what I'm able to keep up with and keep going. Mm-hmm. I need something that has structure with flexibility. So our design touchstones are mindset and relationships. And that's, I feel like that's where we've mostly spent our time. Um, The other touchstones are, you know, real world opportunities, as well as promoting creative and critical thinking. And so I was curious as to sort of what educators um, that you admire that either embody one or all three of these um, superpowers. which which sort of design touch which educators do you think are kind of fit any or any or all of those touchstones? Some books I love. It's obviously We Can This by Cornelius Minor, which, you know, maybe we can share about the book study that we're working yes. on together for that. Um, and also The Art of Possibility by mm-hmm. Rosamond Stone Zander and Benjamin Zander. It's a great book about using this growth mindset in your life. And there's a lot about they're both educators. So there's a lot of classroom experience that is woven into that book. It's got some great mindset and relationship building tips. And it's a great audible listen. They have really nice British accent. So (laughs) I always like that. I always end up speaking with a British accent after I've listened to a long book (laughs) with a British accent. Um, one of the things that Amy alluded to just now was the Black Lives Matter for Educators um, Facebook community that um, you know Amy came up with the idea for, and then I and another educator we know, Erica Terry, um, have joined together to create. So um, if that, definitely if you're interested in um, sort of working toward um, learning more about, you know, how you can support your students in your classroom, um, we are currently this summer doing a, a book study about called We Got This um, by Cornelius Minor. Um, that's really giving us some things to think about, but also some action steps that we can use in our classrooms. And again, the community is called Black Lives Matter um, to Educators, and you can find it in, in um, Facebook. So, Amy, um, mm-hmm. if people want to sort of learn more from you, um, where can they find you? So they can sign up for my email list at my website, which is lightenupteaching.com, L-I-G-H-T-E-N, up teaching. And I'm also Lighten Up Teaching on Instagram. And on Twitter, it's just Lighten Up Teach because... I guess there's fewer letters in the username. Um, That's where I am on most social media. And I love to share things that I'm learning and how I'm putting this into place in my classroom, which it'll be an interesting year since I'm switching 
at my same school into the art teaching job. So I'll be able to apply all this in a really different sort of setting, which I'm really excited to. That will be exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for, you know, coming on design lessons. I think that each of us can really take away some really concrete strategies that we can use in our classrooms and with our kids. Um, you know, with this idea of mindset, I love how you talked about, um, you know, mindfulness really being about just paying attention, um, that that is uh, about paying attention to what's happening now, paying attention to your emotions, paying attention to your growth, paying attention, just paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if people sort of remember that and kind of, you know, yes, there's yoga, there's meditation. However, mindfulness in your everyday life really has, there's some really practical strategies that you can use for yourself as a teacher, as an educator, um, as well as ways that you can design your day um, and make your teaching day better. Absolutely. Yeah. And this design, designing your classroom to meet the needs of your students, like everything you talk about is so aligned with mindfulness. They're basically one in the same. So I really appreciate your work. Oh, thanks, Amy. All the books that Amy mentioned are linked in the show notes at michelleschmidtmore.com slash podcasts. Please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Let me know what strategy resonated with you. Until next time, designers. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. We will see you on the next episode.